I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mmm. <laughs> okay. How are you feeling? I'm good. How are you? You know, surviving. How's your week been? Oh, busy. Mm -hmm. Work was very busy. Um, but yeah, nothing remarkable occurred this past week, which mm -hmm. is nice. Tomorrow's Mother's Day. Uh, yeah. Uh, what did you do? I know that you went to your first physical press screening. Yes. Kind of. Yes, it, I did uh, attend a screening in a theater. What was that like? You can't tell us the movie, but tell us what it was like. It was lovely. Um, you know, it's, I saw a lot of people that I haven't for, you know, over a year now um, on the circuit. And uh, everybody seemed kind of giddy. And it was just nice to, you know, have a semblance of normalcy. Did everyone wear their mask? Of course it was required. Well, that's good to know. Well, we'll just jump into some of your topics for today. Mm. So, Tawny Catan. Isn't it Catan? Oh, I thought it was Catan. That's oh. what I looked it up. I thought you said it was like kitten. I said it was kitten, but Catan. Oh, well. Ah, Tawny Catan. Uh, she died. She did. 59. 59. We don't know the cause of death. Very young. My recollection of her is from the White Snake video and also from the surreal life, which was like celebrity version of the real world. She was on like I think one of the last seasons, if not the last season, um, and the cast of that season wasn't the most remarkable. But yeah, that's my memory of her. Do you recall her? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, but from the television series Hercules, starring Kevin Sorbo. Oh. Uh, where I believe she was Dianara, his, I think she was his girlfriend, or something, or she was always in peril, or she died, or there were memories of her, I, I don't remember, um, Kevin Sorbo was kind of a douche, but, uh, we would watch Hercules religiously as a family, which of course, you know, the spinoff of that was Xena, Warrior Princess, which my mother was more into than the rest of us, um, <laughs> <laughs> looking back, uh, lesbian tendencies maybe. anyway um yes she you know i as a kid i remember her and i think my dad incorrectly said she was raquel welch's daughter um but that's tawny welch so for, for years uh tawny Katan, i thought <laughs> was raquel welch's daughter but she's not interesting uh, you watched something called Fatal Beauty? Something called. Well, you know, that we're always catching up and filling in holes of things we missed. and You are always catching up and filling <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you know. Uh, yeah, Fatal Beauty with Whoopi Goldberg. I've never seen it. Uh, and Sam Elliott, which was a very entertaining uh, L.A. neo-noir. Um, you know, Whoopi had such an interesting career in the 80s after The Color Purple. It's... There are so many films she did that are really worth a revisit that I feel like people don't talk about. Like, the, of course, there's Jumpin' Jack Flash, uh, which I believe is a Penny Marshall film, which I also watched a few months ago for the first time. But Telephone, uh, that Rip Torn directed, which I did not think was any good. Um, and I believe, I think, I want to say somebody, Harry Nilsson co-wrote that? Uh, or someone of that ilk? And, um, or Homer and Eddie the Konchalovsky film 
John Waters has a cameo in where she's um, opposite Jim Belushi or uh, John Belushi. Wait, the one that's alive still, Jim Belushi, um, and he's like uh, mentally handicapped, I believe. Hmm. I watched it a couple years ago and I had it on. I'm not familiar. Oh, okay. Never, never mind. Anyway, Fatal Beauty I thought was kind of entertaining to catch up on, and it, it was nice to. She, because um, there's that's the name of this drug that's out on the street that's uh, decimating everybody. You were the drug is called Fatal Beauty. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, you I had it on because James Legro I was had a small part as this. He's this young, rich white kid that is fascinated by her character. I recall you talking about it. Rizzoli. I didn't pay much attention. Um, that sounds about right. And uh, she gets to like kick the shit out of this rich white lady that was very cathartic to see. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I finished season two of The Circle, mm -hmm. which I know I talked shit about, I think, last week, but it roped me in. <clears throat> I still think it's a shitty, like, poorly produced show in that there's a ton of filler, but it 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 is engrossing. But I think what I like about it is I really wish there were a real-life, like, online game Mm -hmm. based on the circle like I would pay to play that okay like to organize with like 10 other people and try to suss out who's real and fake and then there's a winner I, I think the like as a social experiment it's interesting I feel like we play a version of this game in our real lives I agree um <laughs> but anyway I did finish it I didn't think I would you did. I was happy with the winner I shed a little tear you um, shed a tear I did because I thought she was so the winner was a woman named Delisa who was catfishing as a man named Trevor but Trevor is her actual husband so she was pretending to be her husband and she seemed very like it was weird because she was catfishing but she seemed the most authentic oh and like the kindest how meta i don't know and yeah but i enjoyed her and if there was anything worth shedding a tear over in that it was michelle buteau's makeup on the last oh the final episode where they reunite i think maybe there was an issue with because of covid they didn't have full hair and makeup staff i don't know because michelle buteau looked crazy she looked like she had been done up nicely the night before and then went to sleep <laughs> And then took one of those makeup cloths and like half wiped her face with a it. A cheesecloth. Yeah, like a damp cheesecloth and then showed up for filming. It was really bad. Mm. Uh, you watched something called Above Suspicion? Yeah, you didn't want to watch it, but uh, covered for Ion Cinema. Uh, new Philip Noyce film, which is the reason I wanted to watch it. Philip Noyce, um, you've seen Dead Calm with Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane and... Uh, is that what they're Sam, in the boat? Sam Neill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is a, a pretty, I did enjoy that. Yeah, I, I do enjoy that. It's got a good vibe. I mean, it's, it's very basic narrative. But, uh, and then, you know, he he went into the Hollywood studio system doing those Tom Clancy adaptations like Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, which I watched for the first time very recently for the new um, Michael B. Jordan Tom Clancy movie. And um, it, you've seen Salt with Angelina Jolie. That's a film. And James movie. McAvoy, right? I don't remember James McAvoy now. What's the Loom of Fate? That's Wanted. Oh, never mind. See, I can't... Whenever you bring <laughs> up something, I have to stop it. Because you, you tried to say Tim Blake Nelson was in Men in Black. And I'm glad that I said something in that review because... Um, 
uh, in our review of Monster because he's not. He, the person who I was referring to in Men in Black is... It's Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. But they both look like little rodents. <sighs> oh, my God. Um, they do. They have the, these googly eyes and this narrow face. <laughs> That's why I confused them. Uh, okay. Uh, Philip, no, Angelina Jolie, Salt. Um, yes, not different James McAvoy, Angelina movie. Um, Philip Noyce. It just seems... <laughs> So this is that movie you passed on watching is starring Amelia Clark, who I don't particularly care for. She's from Game of Thrones, and we reviewed last Christmas that ill. Oh, that lady. George, yeah. Okay. Uh, she plays this kind of white trash woman in late eighties Kentucky, and it's about the first time an FBI agent was convicted of wrongdoing. Basically, Jack Hughes. Oh yes. That's oh, right. that was. Didn't I tell you it looked tedious and boring and it dry? Was, it was tedious. And I'm so tired of, you know, films. It's, it's uh, another go-to for me is that uh, film with Forrest Whitaker and uh, Andrew Riseborough and what's his name, um, Burden, about those racist people, white people that had that uh, uh, museum of racist artifacts or whatever. Uh, they don't... Amelia Clark is way too uh, put together to correctly portray this pill-popping, drug-addled hophead in late 1980s Kentucky. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Like, this woman... I didn't look up what the real woman looked like, but um, I'm just tired of these, these polished white people playing white trash, and it's like, this is not, not how they looked. Um, Jack Houston, again, playing a, a villain... Uh, we, of course, saw him in Antebellum recently. I don't know what it is about the Houston clan. They just always are villains. Um, and, oh, who I wanted to shout out for being particularly bad was, uh, is it Carl Glusman uh, from Gaspar Noe's Love, which I love me some Gaspar Noe. I did not like his 3D sex movie, Love. Uh, but Carl Glusman, Glusman, oh, just... I think my one note was... Carl Guzman is terrible in this one. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, you won't be seeing it. Nope. Yesterday I did try to watch... Was it yesterday I tried to watch Shallow Hal? You made it through most of it. Did I? Mm-hmm. You had never seen it before, huh? I had never seen it. I think you put it on because you said you wanted some background noise, and I said, oh, Shallow Hal's amusing. I don't even recall why I agreed. Um, but it's interesting. I can't imagine it being made now which you know i i think it it was it managed because i haven't seen that since 2001 i think it managed to get some interesting points across um sure i just can't picture like a notable person wanting to play the role well there's a lot about it that's you know the implications of a lot of the characterizations i can see how people would be offended not that there isn't a lot of stuff offensive stuff that makes it onto TV and movie screens, but... Well, it's kind of... You didn't see um, Amy Schumer's Isn't She Pretty. With Nicki Minaj? Uh, Nicki Minaj. Isn't Nicki Minaj in it? No. No? What's the Amy Schumer movie with Nicki Minaj? Naomi Campbell's in it. Oh, no. Nicki Minaj is in a movie with... Cameron Diaz. Yes. Sorry. Anyway, Isn't She Pretty? <laughs> isn't she... With, that's the one where Michelle Williams has the wonky voice. Little White Michelle Williams I has the wonky voice. I have seen that voice. movie. Oh, not with me. Yeah, she's but. in like a, a spin class and then she hits her head. And yes. Then, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's some problems. Like that, 
that movie also very clunkily addressed some important issues. I think the biggest issue with Shallow Hal, it may have worked better if Hal had a more diverse um, palette for women. Sure. But it was just like these skinny white ladies. It That is a co-worker tells him is out of, are out of his league. Which I, you know, I think that kind of terminology and verbiage is problematic as well. I just but, thought the humor was, it, I mean, it, it just wasn't that funny to me. I think Jason Alexander's character is grating. He's grating, but I think that's the great point about it, is these, these broke-down-looking men who think that they can critique a woman's looks when they themselves are horrendous-looking. But, um, what, but, but what's hard to watch is, so for those who don't know, the premise is... How this Hal character gets hypnotized by the motivational speaker Tim Robbins to only see the beauty in people. The inner beauty. The inner beauty. So he is finding what the film is like sort of insinuating are unattractive women. Yes. And then he sees them as his ideal of beauty, which is just like skinny white women. But but, but the problem to me was the these women who are supposed to be considered unattractive, we do see them. Mm-hmm. And I and I didn't like that. One of them is Bonnie Aarons. One of them is Bonnie Aarons, the nun. But you know, many of them are plus size. Well, one in particular. Well, the main one, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's well, yeah. true self is a well, plus size woman. We call her Goop, but okay. But yeah, I, I just felt uncomfortable seeing. It's just such a weird thing casting people knowing that like you're gonna play the ugly bitch. <laughs> well, that th- made me uncomfortable. The process of thinking that these women knew that they were the ugly version of a prettier woman in a movie. Yes, yes, and then you know they do them up to look not their best as well. Um, uh, but I think the other problem is the visualization of what is the standard of beauty. You know that what their inner beauty is. I think technically is also a problem. Like these super quaffed women with models but that look like they're going to a photo shoot like that is what the standard of beauty is for a woman that he interprets it as which well i think think that's fair like that can be what he likes but but yeah i mean the way it's worded like well how does inner beauty translate to what you're saying Mm -hmm. it yeah that being said um well i don't even want to say i enjoyed it because i think i fell asleep the final 15 minutes but um which is the only good part of it is the song that plays over the credits is love grows where my rosemary goes by edison lighthouse okay well next you why did you just watch madame claude oh so i wanted to talk okay so you know netflix is you know this conglomerate i've uh, heard of it which you know i'm very appreciative for an apparatus like netflix but especially since the pandemic, you know, they've acquired, as many streaming services have, all of these films that they wouldn't have in, in, if this had never happened to us. And there's just no fanfare about some things that I feel very personally passionate about, you know, especially foreign cinema. There, there's no fanfare about that. The, whether or not it ends up deserving it, it it's just like, geez. Um, so obviously we review a lot of stuff from Netflix and which all the uh, publicists I've ever worked from, with from there, uh, all of their staff are very... If you request to review something and you're a member of the press, you know, they're, they're forth, you get to see it. But it takes also reviewing things and sometimes very last-minute things that they kind of just dump out there. Like uh, another film that this happened to, um, and I didn't, I didn't like it at all and I didn't review it, actually, was DNA by Mai Wen, uh, which 
had the 2020 can label on it. So ostensibly that means it would have played somewhere at Cannes. You know, she directed Police in 2011 and My, My King in 2015. And, um, you know, she's... Luc Besson, she's in. She's the diva in the Fifth Element. You know who my Wen is. Okay. She has, and and she's uh, the the love object in High Tension of Cecile de France. Okay. Um. A very distinct looking woman. Uh, but DNA, even though it stars Fanny Ardant, was terrible. But they kind of dumped that uh, on their platform, and they did that earlier in April with a film I'd kind of been waiting to see, called Madame Claude, directed by Sylvie Verhyde. Um, and I, it's not that I've even really liked Verhyde's previous films, like Confessions of a Child of the Century in 2012, which I believe stars the musician, oh, is it Pete Doherty? Does that oh, sound the right? the one Amy Winehouse used to date? I think so, yeah. Uh, that was, a, I, uh, that played a can in one of the sidebars, and I, I hated it. Uh, Sex Doll with uh, Hasya Herzi and Paul Ami, uh, I didn't really care for either. But I was looking forward to this one. Because uh, I was waiting, Cult Epics released the 1977 film by uh, Just Jakin uh, of the same title um, very recently on Blu-ray. So I, was, I just had a double feature this weekend of the two Madame Claudes. And Madame Claude isn't... Uh, and I'm sure, I know I brought it up in other uh, recordings. You know, brothels and brothel madams I find extremely appealing characters on screen. And Madame Claude was an actual uh, brothel keeper in the late 60s, early 70s that had kind of a powerful little empire in Paris that got taken down for political and social reasons. And both of those films deal with that um, in interesting ways. So I, I finally sat down to watch both of them. All right. We watched But the... I'm not done talking about them yet, so... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of sat in the back. Okay, so the first Madame Claude, um, which I watched second, was directed by Just Jakin, who's known for, he he discovered Sylvia Christel kind of in the first Emmanuel film, and then directed the story of O uh, with Udo Kier, which also is a uh, notable piece of erotic fiction and cinema. Uh, but Madame Claude stars notably Francoise Fabian, um, who starred in Romare's uh, My Afternoon with Maude, I believe, and um, another famous brothel movie, Belle de Jour. She's the part in that. She plays the titular Madame Claude. Um, and Dale Haddon, who looks like very Isabella Johnny, a famous model from the 70s, uh, is in it. Klaus Kinski. Serge Gainsbourg did the music with Jane Birkin singing the one song, which you kept making fun of because you had it in the background. Um, and the rest of Gainsbourg's score, I swear he must have used Canon in D uh, major, which is the same song that Vitamin C used in her graduation song. Because mm. I kept hearing those um, strings throughout it. Uh, the, the original Madame Claude makes her seem very predatorial. Um, but it, there's a very decadent feel to it. And I want to say that Verhyde's version, starring uh, Carol Rocher, who's beautiful and reminds me kind of of Diane Lane. Um, she seems a little more mer mercurial, and it, it just feels a little more square in his presentation, even though it has a great cast, Pierre Deladon-Champ. Um, I'm forgetting off the top of my head who else is in it. Uh, but interesting. But the original one, as I said, is much more decadent. It has Fra Francois Fabian having sex, showgirl style in a bathtub. Both films have very interesting but different scenes uh, regarding how she would force her p 
potential girls to wash their genitals. Oh. <laughs> um, which I found interesting. Anyhow, so I, I guess since you have no comment, we can move on. All right. We did watch the second episode of Drag Race Down Under. Uh-huh. Or how do you feel about it after two episodes? Wait, who went home this time? Uh, oh, it's shockingly. Uh, our Simone? I don't recall her name anymore. <laughs> you just watched it today. I know. Okay, it was Snatch Game. Yeah, that's the other That's the other gag, right? The, they did Snatch Game on the second episode. And um, Coco... What is her name? Coco... Coco Jumbo. No, Electroshock. 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 Did Catherine O'Hara. Wait, so who went home this episode? Coco Jumbo had to lip sync against Art Simone, who did... Um, Bindi Irwin. You're right, Art Simone. Um, yeah, that was a shock because she was con- she's considered a sort of more popular queen and she did really well episode one. Um, it's almost as shocking as the one who went home very early in, in the second season of UK Drag Race. Uh, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Joe. Are you thinking about Joe? The black one. Who's the like one. very beautiful, very polished. Oh, yes. The one her. that gin- Lemony... What's- yeah, no, I'm thinking of the one who went home first the second season of UK Drag Race. Something. Oh, Joe jo- Bell. Joe. Oh, Joe Black. Joe Black. Oh, God. We are messing this up. Uh, Joe Black, who looks, you know, very much like uh, Glenn Close currently. Anyway, I'm still not sold on uh, Drag Race Down Under, but I'll continue to watch. You know what? Strangely enough, though, I feel the same way of every Drag Race, the first few episodes, because you kind of have to get to know them a little bit to feel... Um, familiar or sure it's like you have to get through all of that artifice at first okay Uh, Benedetta Uh uh-huh what is that well in our last podcast I brought up reading Immodest Acts by Judith C. Brown which I'm sure you recall and um, since then Benedetta the new Paul Verhoeven film that, that it's based on oh is that an earthquake I think there was just an earthquake Note the time. <laughs> the show must go on. Uh, the ben- show must go on. Benedetta, which I'm, you know, anytime there's a new Paul Verhoeven film, the trailer dropped this week, and I, I usually am not one for trailers anyway, but I also made you watch it. That's right, about the nuns. Yeah, with Virginia Fira yes. and Charlotte Rampling. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what I was referencing last week when I was reading that book. All right. Well, what did you think of the trailer? Uh, you know, there's another movie with an Italian actress with beautiful eyes and corpulous breasts where she plays a, like a lesbian nun. Anita Ekberg. Anita Ekberg. What's the name of the film? Killer Nun. Killer Nun. <laughs> it reminded me of that. I don't think she's Italian, though. She's not Italian? She's as famous for an Italian film, La Dolce Vita. Oh, well, please excuse me. But, um, I, I was getting flashbacks of that, but I know that Benedetta will not be that much fun. Oh, um, no, I don't... Did you remember the, the snake? You know there's going to be some bullshit. There's a CGI, like, cobra, sure, but... And Charlotte Rampling uh, giving withering looks at the camera. I'm not excited to see it. I'm sure I'll watch it, but... Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah. It's uh, already been announced officially. Uh, I mean, Terry Fromo has kept saying that it would be, but it's official. It's this, The can stamp is on the trailer. It will be there. Okay. Uh, I... I'm three episodes in 
uh, Legendary on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. I really, really like that show. Yeah, it's a good show. I really like that show. That's all I want to say about that. Okay, Please yeah. watch it. I want it to come back for a third season. I'm sure it will. Uh, and, and Pose. Oh, you oh, want to talk about Pose? Oh, are we? you want to wait till the series is done? Or? No, we can mention Pose. We started uh, season three. The first two episodes dropped. Mm-hmm. And I would be lying if I said I was impressed. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed the first two seasons, and I think episode four of season two is, is one of is the best. Is that the funeral? Is the funeral okay. and of uh, Angela, I forget her name now, but uh, I, I think that's one of the best uh, pieces of TV I've ever seen. Okay. For yeah, my liking. Good. Yeah, it was good. So season three feels a little crunchy. It's... Mm-hmm. Filmed during the pandemic, which is obvious because some of the ball scenes are a little skimp on attendance. Yeah, yeah. And some of the cast members look like they aren't in fighting shape. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. Especially, well, well, you know, like Angel's supposed to be a model. Like, mm-hmm. that's her gig. And she looks a little full, gorgeous and healthy looking. But it... Because then her character is also, like, on crack. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're a little thickums for a crackhead, but okay. Damon as well. Damon also got a little thick. But I don't want to get too much into Pose, because I think uh, we should do a more lengthy... Com- have a more lengthy conversation when the season's Sure. There, to initial reactions, though, I, I did have pleasant feelings watching them all gather together in... Blanca's apartment to watch the O.J. Simpson chase. The um, low-speed chase. The low-speed mm-hmm. chase. Because um, it made me want to be there with them. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it's like Ryan Murphy, uh, like, seems to want to predicate all of his things on whatever was notable in the news at the time. It feels formulaic, but I don't know that that's... That's not the worst part of what I think I saw. I think they were probably just limited because of filming restrictions and, and maybe they had better scripts, but then COVID hit and they had to... Well, work. I don't know. They're just repeating a lot of things. They are. Like the intervention with um, Pray Tell is, you know... Yeah, I, I feel like the scene where they confront him is exactly like the scene mm-hmm. we previously had in, like, I think the end of season one, maybe. And bless Dominique Jackson, who looks... Amazing. Um, she's so fun. I mean, she's just so fun to experience, but her acting, I don't think will ever get better. Well, and that's fine. It's like, she's doing a Betty Davis impression almost, but... I just don't know what she could do outside of... Like, if she doesn't improve her acting ability, what can she do outside of the show? I just think maybe it'd be interesting to see her playing um, a cis character. Or that. I mean, I, I would... I would love to see her in anything else. Yeah. I will give anything she does a try. Yeah, I find same. her so entertaining and so fun to watch. Okay. Uh, the tra- You said the trailer dropped for Tom and Pammy, or it's been announced that it's in production? Uh, stills dropped, for oh, sure, because I got an email about it. But I hadn't been aware that it was happening. But Hulu's new series about the first viral sex tape, uh, Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson's, uh, where Sebastian Stan is Tommy Lee and Lily uh, James. Oh, I have seen these stills. That's oh, right. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Uh, yeah, they're I mean, both he... they're both like you know good looking white people. You can paint a palette on any other white person over them. So. Well, I'm not gonna say that, but yeah, I mean <laughs> the stills they look 
the part. So that should be fun. That should be interesting. We'll see. I, I'm not convinced about James's um, level of, at least me being interested. Uh, she was Cinderella and, and Baby Driver and in the Mamma Mia sequel. And I, she has yet to do anything that's impressive to me. Okay, finally for our little topics. That no, you... I, I want to talk about projects that... I was going to say... Oh, sorry. Finally, with our little topics, there are three projects you wanted to talk about that have just received funding. Oh, yes. Okay, well, please uh, grace us with that. Well, Serge Bazin, uh, I believe it's his fourth film, um, has Don Juan, a musical... Uh, I'm assuming that's the pronunciation because that's the Lord Byron poem about the uh, famous Lothario. Uh, Virginia Fira and Tahar Rahim, a musical. Um, Serge Bazin, if you aren't familiar, directed uh, both Tip Top and Madame Hyde, starring Isabelle Huppert. And you haven't seen any of those films. Even his first uh, feature, La France, with Pascal Gregory from 2007, is also a musical, actually. Uh, very interesting director, um, his usual little screenwriter involved as well, Axel uh, Ropair. Um, yes, and Virginia Fira, of course, about to be seen in Benedetta, is starring in it. Um, uh, from the new German wave, Margaret von Trotta uh, announced a new project, Bachmann and Frisch. Uh, anytime there's a new von Trotta film, of course, I am there, I'm interested. Um, and, and a film I've been, a project I've been waiting to hear about for a long time, just announced its uh, lead, uh, Gerard Corbeau, I'm probably butchering his last name, but he's best known as the director of Farinelli, if you'll remember from the early 90s, um, has a, a film called Saving Mozart, uh, which has been in development for quite some time, has announced that Gabriel Byrne will be playing the, the lead. Uh, so, I mean, I like Gabriel Byrne, but I'm mostly excited to see that that project is still alive and will be forthcoming. Okay. And that's it. Th that was all three? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that was quicker I mean, than you're, I not gonna, you're not going to comment on them, so I've got to just kind of vomit it all out there. Well, I'm glad you have this uh, platform to do that. Mm -hmm. All right, so the larger topic today was difficult to come about, or sort of hone in on, because... Well, because I left it up to you to choose. Oh, so I'm the problem. <laughs> I'm. There's nothing problematic, I'm just saying. I wanted to talk about... Representation. Since we last time we talked about representation, uh, trans representation in film, I wanted to talk about gay male representation in TV and film, but not such a broad topic. More along the lines of specific to us and our age range, which I'm older than you, but not that much. Well, six years, but um, <laughs> you know, you're 36, I'm 42, so uh -huh. that range. Sure. Like. So in the 80s for me and in the 90s for you, like viewing TV and television and the representation of gay men, mm -hmm. how that may have affected our like development into adulthood sure. and how we see the world now. So kind of trying to narrow it down. I don't know that we'll be able to do that with, you know, another 20 plus minutes, but um, I thought a good jumping off point was to talk about sort of our earliest memories of gay men in TV and film. So, sure. what are, so what are the things that come to mind? Um, or the people, sorry. I, th I think things were... You know, I would sneak read a lot of things that I knew I wasn't supposed to read. Um, so my introduction to sexuality was through, like, V.C. Andrews and Stephen King. Uh, 
and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison, which, you know, were young black girls being raped by usually relatives. So a very, not surprisingly, heterosexual lens. But the whisperings of gay men about gay men and AIDS. Uh, I remember in the band played on was referenced because I think my grandmother, who had her own little library, had the book, uh, and that was an early 90s television sensation. Um, but I don't think I have any real memories visually of seeing gay men uh, until my mother rented Tu Wong Fu, and it was probably one Sunday, I remember her ironing, and she had Tu Wong Fu on, and I watched it with her. And I, I very distinctly remember RuPaul, uh, dropping down from the the air <laughs> in that drag contest as Rachel Tensions uh, and thinking she was a woman uh, and having my mother... that That's kind of also when drag was explained to me at about the same time. Um, it just... In whatever I was reading, I think... And that was... What, what year was that? 95? Already by then I knew. Um, other... And I'd already read pornographic things and seen pornographic things because we had cable. Uh, and so when my parents were uh, in bed at night, like things like Sex Bites, um, I would watch in secret. Uh, and, which clearly, you know, that wasn't for gay audiences, but there were gay things sometimes in there. Okay. My first thought is there was a television show from the late 70s, early 80s called Three's Company. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it they were reruns because it was. I was probably watching it in like 85, maybe 84, maybe at the end of the run, but there would be reruns. And the premise of the show is Jack Tripper, played by John Ritter. Yep, rest in peace. He rents an apartment with two other women, but the landlord, Mr. Furley, will only allow it because he believes Jack is gay. Mm -hmm. And Jack... The character is not gay, but is pretending to be gay, and his housemates or roommates are also pushing that narrative. And I remember that being sort of my, like, introduction. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I understood. My initial thought with, and so that's the only memory I can think of um, as a younger, like, as a kid. And I think I confused that with, like, he wants to be a woman. Okay. So I think I thought, oh, Jack Tripper is pretending to be a woman, and that's why he's allowed to live there, even though he's never dressed like a woman. But then he does, has the limp wrist and mm -hmm. wash it, walks with a swish and is helping the girls do their nails and put on makeup and do their hair. So I think, um, so that was my first impression. And then I don't really recall, I'm sure I saw, you know, I remember seeing... RuPaul's supermodel video in like 1993 it was on TV mm -hmm. oh, and then there'd be like Hollywood Montrose and Mannequin and... there were little things like that that do stick out mm -hmm. um, but the but the things that stick out the most are Three's Company then RuPaul and I remember watching the video or seeing RuPaul on TV and mentioning to my dad and then my dad being like that's sick that's a man mm -hmm. and I did not realize that was a man so my mind was kind of blown like or like Crying Game and Ace Ventura, you know, things like that where... Yeah, my, my, I mean, my little naive, innocent brain, I don't know. The next time I remember really under... The, the first time I recall understanding what a gay person was and seeing them on TV was Queer as Folk. And that was the year 2000. So I was 20... 
22. Oh, I, have a, I have a funny memory about that, but yeah. Well, share it. Well, I mean, I was already sleeping around with men when I was 13. But uh, I very uh, much knew, but I, I think that the lens by which I, I was able to procure what it meant to me to be gay, what gay life looked like, you know, wasn't, I think had significant ramifications about uh, my my sexual health, my sexuality. Well, I think but, that's what we're going to talk about. But, but. Um, Queer as Folk, I remember seeing, because we had cable, as I said, um, was it Showtime that that was on? Or HBO? Queer as Folk? Yeah. Showtime. Um, so there would be ads for that. But it would always play when my parents obviously were home in the evening. So I was out, I was already like, I was working as a dishwasher at a deli in northern Minnesota. And I would spend all my little paychecks on cigarettes and um, Sigourney Weaver items on eBay. But I found a copy of, on VHS, that, <laughs> of the pilot episode of Queer as Folk. And I would skip out of school to go to the public library to get on eBay. To, I remember to outbid people on this pilot <laughs> that I ended up paying $100 for on VHS, one episode of Queer as Folk, that I had to have mailed to my work because I was so afraid that I wouldn't, that my parents would open it just so I could have it. <laughs> no, that's... And it was my whole, that was more than my whole check, I remember. Um... To get a hold of that for something that I could have watched on television if I had alone privacy. Um, yeah, prior, to, I mean, obviously, not obviously, I mean, I was 21 when Queerest Folk came out and I remember there was one, I was in college in Las Vegas and there was one guy I knew who had Showtime, which was kind of a big deal mm -hmm. in, at, at that time. So everyone would kind of go to his apartment and watch it. Prior to that, I had rented some films which I think we'll segue into next. But I think for what I was trying to sort of build the foundation for was what, what I understood to be gay was very, based on what I saw on TV and film, which was really the only exposure I had um, because I didn't know any gay people like as a kid. I had a cousin, like, a, like, like, my mom's aunt had a son, so not really, I guess that's like a cousin twice removed, I don't know, who I, I think I recall someone saying was gay, and I know that my dad had a friend who was a lesbian, and like, mm -hmm. but again, I was confused because she was very butch, mm -hmm. butch, serving butch queen realness, so I always thought she was like a man. Sure. I, I think I was confused, and if you would... Yeah, I don't, again, I don't know what I thought it meant to be a lesbian. And my dad would use language that wasn't, you know, calling her a dyke and a bulldagger. But it was his friend. So I think I just associated it with, like, she's kind of weird because she's manly looking. But she's my dad's friend, so she can't be bad. And then my dad had another friend who was a very, looking back, like a very effeminate man. And didn't have a wife or a girlfriend. And I think, um, I just thought he was kind of weird. Sure. But getting back to what I thought gay meant because of what I saw on TV and film, really, I think, affected how I saw myself 
as a young adult. So going to college and not really understanding anything. And I think I wanted to talk about how, how does that affect us and how do, how do you think your perception of yourself and your sexuality would be different if you had a, the same, like if you were 15 in 2021 and had exposure to all types of media and all subject matter, like how do you think you would be different as a gay man? Oh, I'd be such a bigger whore. <laughs> and I How's like, that possible? I already felt I like... I don't understand that. Well, the access, I, there was, I had to convince people. I mean, because there was no. Internet, I don't I was, mean like the technology. I mean, okay. like if you if you were a teenager in twenty twenty one, and you were able to see, like, have access to. I'm glad that stories. I'm and, not, but um, yes, I, I I think that I would have. There would have the, the silver lining is I I think that I would have had access to better rounded representation, you know. Um, let me back up a second. When you were a teenager, like 12, well, let, let, let's say 13, uh-huh. did you understand what it meant to be, like, gay? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I knew that it was something I would not tell anybody. So I think maybe, so I, so I think that's maybe the difference. I'm also older than you, so when I was 13, you know, that is a different period. Um, and, I, and I don't think I understood what that meant. So it was just confusing for me. I think, how do I say this? I think I had the luxury of being, you know, being 18 and in college in a city that was, you know, more transient, access to more people. And then, you know, I'm not too hard on the eyes. So then I think it was just, you know, I I think things happened to me and experiences happened to me that I I didn't know to look for. Sure. Mm -hmm. I, I think if I were living in maybe a smaller town... It would have been very different because I wouldn't have known, like, I mean, I don't want to get into, like, specific things on, on, on this good day, but I think I was just so naive. Mm-hmm. Like, so super was, naive. Yeah, I wasn't at all. And you weren't, but I was super, but super naive. About, about some things, I thought I knew all about sex and intimacy, but, you know, come to find, like, actually experiencing those things based on reading about them or having... Um, uh, casual sex is not the same as you come to find but well but relating it back to tv and film i think because i didn't know what because in tv and film there weren't really sort of accurate depictions of what gay men were like except that they were flamboyant and they were you know either my thought of gay men when i was younger like an adolescent was that they want to be like women and that they're either like florists mm-hmm. or hairdressers mm-hmm. or like interior designers mm-hmm. so and they all are, are prone to getting hiv and AIDS. well that was i mean that was you know we're talking like the the earlier 80s and then yes like late yeah. 80s early 90s then it was like oh gay men have aids mm-hmm. gay men have aids that's just how it goes so i think that really didn't help me understand like oh I'm an adult now, I'm 18, and I'm, like, out in the world, I'm in college, I, I work three part-time jobs, I'm around a lot of people. It took me a very long time to recognize that people were trying to be, like, sexual with me, mm-hmm. or um, that people wanted my attention, and I, and I really think that's because I didn't have access to um, imagery and stories sure. that accurately represented gay people. Well, not only gay people, but all of those, if we're talking about the 90s, you know, there was, 
gay cinema, but it was all through the lens of, you know, white gay men, basically, and, and HIV and AIDS, most certainly, yeah. uh, was touched on in all of those. And um, so, yeah, I don't know where you would see yourself exactly. So then that's the next point is like, so yeah, so then I f- fast forward to being a young adult, right? And it is the late 90s. And the, and you know, I have access to a Hollywood video rental card and a Blockbuster card. And I'm going to that little one sliver of shelf space that had, um, you know, gay stories. Gay, I think they usually said like gay and lesbian yeah, movies. Yeah. And it was either everyone dies from AIDS mm-hmm. or it's all about the party. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like white and very attractive and muscular. Mm-hmm. And I didn't identify with either of those storylines. So again, I think I just was fortunate that I was in a bigger city with, even though Vegas is not a, it's probably considered a small to medium sized city because the population doubles every weekend. Mm -hmm. And because the vibe is very much like people wanting to meet people, I had a very easy time meeting people. People are very aggressive. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, people were just very nice to me. So I think that was how I started to hone. But, you know, it took years for me to probably get to the level of sexual understanding that you had when you sure. were 13. But but we're both of an age where people used to talk about a gay age. Like, we're, like technically, we're kind of the same gay age. Remember? you know, As when you know that you're gay and start acting on it and living life as a gay person. Well, no, because I mine started later than yours, and I'm six years older than you, so that's what I just said. When I was 23... I feel like that would be equal to when you were 13. Sure. So we're similar in gay age. The the gap in our actual age is lessened. Oh, that's what you meant. Yes. Okay. Sure. Yes, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But, um... But, but Pete, I don't think that's a, a term that younger people have today. No. And, the, okay. So then moving on, like, trying to keep it on brand for TV and film, I think about, like, what are... Like, as a 42-year-old, as a 36-year-old, when you think about, like, TV and film and, like, the biggest sort of markers for, like, gay male representation, what do you think? I think Will and Grace. Queer as folk. Queer as folk. The British and you American version. Brokeback Mountain. Uh-huh. And, and, like, what else? What are huge... I mean, that's kind of, like, pop culture, like, everyone knows. And I don't even know that everyone knows Queer as Folk. I'm just throwing that in there, but I think Will and Grace and Brokeback Mountain are the two mainstream gay representations of, or two mainstream representations of gay male life. I mean, I'm sure that there are other, there of course are others that have made marks, and um, you know, Moonlight I think is particularly important. Um, you know, won the Best Picture Oscar, so people do know it. Um, I don't know that, I don't know that I think Moonlight is like. A marker for gay representation. I don't know that. I didn't think I even understood that Moonlight was a gay movie until I watched it. Oh, okay. It is. <laughs> I'm talking about something that, like, as a like as a nation, it like it's it was sort of the pulse. Like like people. Well, knew. if you think about Brokeback was 2005. That was a there were a lot of queer things that year. Like, off the top of my head, Trans America, with Felicity Huffman. I was also that year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as gay men go, I think then it's like Pete Booty Cheek, you know, kind of made him, you know, like people understood that 
he's a gay man. The point I was trying to make is I think there still aren't a like an array of gay references that are like mainstream. No. So then, you know, you have mentioned Little Nas X, mm-hmm. which I think is a good reference. And Frank Ocean. And Frank Ocean, but Little Nas X, when he had his first, you know, mega, mega hit, Old Town Road, we didn't know he was gay. He came out afterwards, and now his second big hit is shrouded in controversy because of the visual content. But again, I, this all was really just a conversation in my mind about how... Well, you, you, we started talking about representation of how gay sex is is, uh, presented on screen, Versus intimacy between two men and what uh, a reflection of a stable relationship between two yes, gay men. Yes, positive depictions of gay sex life. And I had a very hard time coming up with anything. You referenced Six Feet Under. Yeah, especially the first time. And I mean, there, there are some toxic things that those two go through. Uh, but it's the first time I remember seeing as a teenager like a gay interracial couple on anything major. Um, but I also referenced something like Making Love in the early 80s with um, uh, Harry Hamlin and David Ontkeen, um, which they're presented as a, ref- as a mirror to, of heteronormativity. B- basically, uh, re- you know, they're completely monogamous, rejecting, you know, having multiple sexual partners. And, and I think that, you know, prior to AIDS, our sexuality was our weapon. And I think that the lie of what love and monogamy uh, and intimacy is supposed to look like that's sold to straight people um, as we become assimilated into the culture is also being um, placed on us. And while it's fair to say that there aren't any like stable loving depictions of a gay couple outside of like here and there, like Supernova with right. Stanley Tucci and yes. Colin Firth. And I'm not implying that there are none. There, I'm sure, I mean, you could name many, you know, indie films and, you know, one-off characters in a series, but I'm talking about mainstream depictions. We don't see gay men predicted in a way that doesn't involve, at one point, AIDS mm-hmm. or being hyper aware of their aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. So they're all about being muscly and beautiful, or they're desexualized. Yes. If it's a content that's made for straight people, they're, of course, almost always. So when I think about Will and Grace, I think that, you know, Jack is a clown mm-hmm. and Will is, you know, played sort of like neutered. And even when, and I, I did watch many episodes of that show, but my impression of Will was that he's kind of like, he's very, like, meek and his relationships were not really sexualized it was just like he wants a companion and it's hard for him to it was more about dating and like the complications of his relationship with you know combining his friend group and how that just complicates things but my only thought if someone said to me what is an accurate depiction of modern gay life my probably my most like my biggest reference would be the HBO series Looking. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I don't think was a very. Po- I think there there were many positive things in that. There series. were, but yes, so I think that would be my reference. And also more diverse than say Queer Spoke, which sure. had a major problem with not having any black people. Really, right? Yes. So, 
Um, anyway, I think this is, I mean, this is a conversation that could go on forever. Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark, well, Noah's I mean, Ark was, it's definitely a marker. Like, it, it oh, definitely sure. has, has its place. There uh, were conversations, I recall, from there that I think were important to hear and see as well. Sure, but yes, yes, I agree. But again, when we, this conversation earlier started because I was thinking... There aren't many. I can think of examples of very realistic depictions of gay male sexuality mm-hmm. and um, relationships, but really, and this there might be a part two, I guess, because we can't keep going. But just when you think, if I think about someone like me, born in nineteen seventy eight, and as a little kid, if I had a if I had turned out to be heterosexual. Everything that is presented to me in TV and film supports this ideal, mm-hmm. right? So there is almost a blueprint available to me through, right. through TV and film on how I should mold my life. But as it were and as it is, there really wasn't, except fear. Because I just spent, I mean, up until, you know, 15 years ago, I thought I was going to die of AIDS. Sure. I thought I was going <laughs> to, I thought I'd always be alone. I didn't think I would ever have, like... A quote unquote normal life with a mortgage and a, you know, I just never thought those things. I never thought I'd be 40. Sure. Yeah. I, but I think the silver lining of not having that, that blueprint and, you know, kind of having to exist in relation to fear is, has forced a lot of uh, gay men uh, and other uh, LGBT people that, you know, life is precious and to, to live it as you would like because. The other blueprint that is sold to uh, our heterosexual counterparts is a lie. It is a fabrication. Um, everything is a cultural construct, a, a series of, of mores to keep people in place, whether it be you know religion or marriage. They're, they're all institutions because if any of us took the time to sit and sift through the history of it, where it comes from, what it means, uh, what are the consequences of not obeying them, uh, we would see that we could be a lot more free than we would want to be. And I think that at the while the cultural gatekeepers uh, that are in charge of, uh, you know, who gets to make cinema still by and large and who gets, how it's distributed and, and what kind of gay characters get to be in what kind of mainstream films per se, we still, I think, have the edge in that we don't, we don't have that blueprint. And I, I think that it's forced us to be innovative in ways that, you know, if you have everything um, on a silver platter for you, you just wouldn't think of. Well, we can end on that for now. <laughs> uh, don't forget to watch our YouTube videos, Fish Jelly Film Reviews. Mm. Do you have any last words? Are you reading anything? Uh, I mean, no. <laughs> well, this week I'm reading The Brick Foxhole, 1945 novel by Richard Brooks, the who is better known as a film director. He did Cat on a Hut Tin Roof, for instance, um, which I think I mentioned in our first podcast because it was going through Richard Brooks' little craze. And uh, this was made into a film called Crossfire in 1947, but they cut out all the homophobia of it. And I will say that I'm very surprised at how well-written it is. And um, the first edition copy I have uh, has a quote from Richard Wright's Bathroom of Native Son on it. Uh, which I find interesting as well. But I'm very much enjoying that, and uh, I have nowhere else to talk about it. So there you go. Good for you. All right. Toodaloo. (laughs) Bye.